So I want to read uh, all of Psalm 20 before we begin, because it's not too long. And so Psalm 20, a Psalm of David, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he regard all your offerings with regard and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Selah. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation. And in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven. With the saving might of his right hand, some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. So two weeks ago, one of our elders, Brett, and he introduced this series on the Psalms. And he gave us a great introduction before he went into Psalms 1 and 2. And he explained that sometimes Psalms go together, like Psalms 1 and 2 or um, in this case, Psalms 20 and 21, they actually go together. They form a pair of what are called royal psalms, and royal psalms mean the psalm has to do with the king. That's what that means. And so in Psalm 20, we have a prayer of petition. It's specifically the congregation of Israel praying that God would grant success to King David, particularly grant um, victory in battle, in battle. And then Psalm 21 uh, gives thanks to God for answering the request of Psalm 20. And so Psalm 20 is the prayer of petition. Psalm 21 is the prayer of thanksgiving. We're not going to look at Psalm 21 today. We're just going to focus on Psalm 20. But one of the things that I want to mention before we get started, and Breton alluded to this, is that often with the Psalms, and I don't want to say with all the Psalms, but often with the Psalms, we see this process of there's an immediate interpretation for the original writer. You know, so this case, you have the congregation praying for David. And then you have a Christocentric or a Christ-centered interpretation of if you, when we read this psalm and you read it again, and you imagine if it's, as if it's being prayed for Jesus, and you realize it's also biblically accurate. And then for us, there's this practical application as new covenant people, as people living post-Jesus, a new people being born again of the Spirit, being sealed with the Spirit of Christ in this second Adam, this new people, this new humanity, the spiritual humanity, a practical application for us and what it means for our lives as people living in Christ. And so as we look at this psalm, in particular Psalm 20, there's really three movements which I've summarized as identifying the trouble you have this identifying the problem or the cause for prayer and then in the second movement you have this desire this expression of what the intercessor wants and then the third movement is this proclamation of trust you know this poetic prayerful expression of a commitment that we're going to place our faith in God and we're going to trust that ultimately the results are in his hand and each of those things tie back into 
those three interpretive movements, you know, so for Israel, so for, for David, there was an immediate trouble, there was an immediate desire, and then there was a prayer of faith. For Christ, there was an immediate trouble, an immediate desire, and then a prayer for trust, as we're going to see in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then for us, day to day, week to week, year to year, lifetime to lifetime, we face all kinds of problems that assail us and attack us, you know, some that are more internal than external, and we can relate completely to that flow of, I have this trouble, and that is in direct contrast to this desire that is within me, and I realize I'm powerless to do anything about it, so I lay myself before the Lord, and I trust that he's going to do what is right. And so I want to explain this psalm through those three movements of trouble, desire, and trust, and I pray that it's relevant to you. So trouble, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. So what is the day of trouble? Well, for David, like I said, it was most likely an impending military excursion. And we would suggest that based upon verse 7, where it talks about trusting in chariots and horses for battle. You don't use a chariot to go, you know, pick up your Walmart, you know, curbside delivery, you know. And so there's this issue of battle that is looming before David. And so that is the immediate trouble. The immediate trouble is David's going to go to war. Now, you have to know that David was a great man of war, not the jellyfish, but he just was like a really tough guy, right? Uh, he killed Goliath. That's what David is most famous for. David killing Goliath with a, a stone and a sling. But he also also led a great number of military ventures. And you can read about a lot of those military ventures. You can read about all of them in 2 Samuel. But if you fast forward to the end of 2 Samuel, in the last few chapters where it gives this narrative recounting of David's mighty men, they're men in tights, tight tights, right? <laughs> this David has this amazing list of what he and specifically his mighty men accomplished, and it kind of reads like the back of a comic card or something like that, you know, because it's like this guy killed a thousand people with a spear. This guy fought a lion in a pit on a snowy day. Let's write a book about him, even though that's the only verse we got, <laughs> right? It'll be a Christian bestseller in no time. Okay, um, there's stories about killing other giants. Apparently, Goliath had some other, some other brothers who were also giants. Poor mom. Um, and there's anecdotes of bravery and heroism and honor. Matter of fact, so bloody was David's reign that um, God forbid him from building the temple, which was going to replace the tabernacle as a permanent location because God said, your, two, your hands have too much blood on them, and I'm not going to allow you to build the temple. I'm going to reserve that for your son. So for David, going to war was not unusual, but you also have to realize that when you go to war, especially a war where you fight with you know, a sword and a spear, the impending threat of death is very real every time you go out. And so the psalm reads as a congregation, like the subjects of the king, praying for their leader. May the Lord answer you. May the Lord protect you, David. May the Lord send you help, give you air support from Zion, which is the holy city, but also 
poetically God's dwelling place. And so this is the trouble that is facing David. Okay? This is the, the, the basis for his, this intercessory, intercessory prayer. And so before we go any further, this is what I want to ask you. And I want you to think, I want you to think about it, write it down, type it down in your phone, whatever it might be. But everybody, unless you're, unless you're ignorant and you're completely disconnected from your own, you know, self-awareness, everybody has something that's burdening them. It could be major. It could be minor. But I would like you to think about what is that day of trouble for you? What is your current day of trouble? And make a mental or physical note of it. You know, perhaps it's situation at home, situation at school. Perhaps it's the politics of the day. It's financial difficulties and a crazy rate of inflation. It could be uncertainty at work. For many people, if we're honest, we wish it were those things. But it's actually dreams still unfulfilled. You know, a single person who is still waiting for a spouse. Uh, a young couple who's still waiting to get pregnant. A new venture, a, a dream that you've had in your heart for 20, 30 years, and you're just waiting for when it's going to be your turn, your chance. Often those are the things that burden us more so than the fleeting whatever is a problem this week in the United States, if we're honest. But acknowledge to the Lord and to yourself what looms before you because there's no benefit in playing like this life is sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows and kind of coddling yourself with Christian platitudes. We, in this life, you will have trouble. But take heart, Jesus has overcome the world, but doesn't do you any benefit to pretend like you don't have trouble. I'm great, everything's great. Well, it's not, okay? Because we live in the same world and there's times when I have choice words to say about it, right? But acknowledge these things and lay your troubles before the Lord as we're commanded to do, as we see in Philippians chapter 4, clearly commun communicating what you're feeling because the, re the reality is this. Why do we pray at all, especially about our problems and our troubles? The reason we pray at all is because at the end of the day, we have no capacity to actually do anything about our issues. For those of you who have little kids, you know this is true because we dream about all of these great things that we're going to do. Like we say, well, we're going to raise our children to be, you know, and then you have like this, I don't know what you picture, right? This Brady Bunch picture. When you, you've lived with yourself for a long time and you know that you've been struggling with the same stuff since you were in second grade, let me rephrase that. I've been struggling with the same stuff since I was in second grade. And so we know that if I can't even change myself, I can't change my kids. I can't change my, my neighbor. I can't change my country or the world. And so when we're honest with ourselves about our own inabilities, it's actually quite humbling. But if we think we can accomplish these things in our flesh, do you know what you'll never do? Say it out loud. What will you never do? You'll never pray because you think that you can do it on your own, which is why our friend Daniel Henderson says, prayerlessness is your declaration of independence from God. The more arrogant you are, the less you'll pray. It's just true. I'm quite arrogant. 
so I don't pray as much as I should. All right, second movement is desire. First movement is trouble. What burdens you? What troubles you? What ails your heart? And the second is desire. It says in verses four and five, may he, the Lord, grant your heart's desires. May he fulfill all your plans, David. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up banners, victory banners, welcome home banners, congratulation banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. So David and his kingdom, his congregation, they desired what? They desired victory in battle. They desired that David would win, that David wouldn't die, that the king would come home. Because when the king dies, as we see throughout First and Second Kings, everything in the nation gets thrown into flux and everything becomes a big mess. And so that wasn't some selfish, militaristic campaign built on, bent on world domination, they realized that God had his hand on David as the anointed one, that he was chosen by God to be this king, and to really God was going to build David into a dynasty. And so for, for them to pray for David's safety was in line with God's promises, okay? In other words, they weren't like, David feels like taking over, um, you know, all the way to China, and so we just pray that God would bless him. Now, that would have been counter to God's plan for David because God made it clear what his plan for David was. And so what they're praying is in step with God's promise for David. And now we can trust this because the word tells us that David was a man after God's own heart. That David wanted what God wanted. And in the, what makes David different from the king before him, King Saul, is that when David is rebuked for his sin because he steps out of line walking with God's heart, David responds with repentance. And he says, I've sinned against you. You, Lord, you alone, O Lord, have I sinned. I've been covered in sin since I was conceived in my mother's womb. You have to forgive me. Whereas when Saul is confronted with his sin, his response to Samuel is, I, I get it, Samuel, but if you could just honor me in front of the people so they respect me, like, I'll deal with that God stuff later. So one is a worldly sorrow. I don't like the way this makes me look. And one is a godly sorrow. I'll become even more undignified than this if it means humbling myself before my true king of kings. And so David is this man who's shaped by his faith. He's shaped by the promises of God. And so God, his desires are in line with God's. And so he says, God, grant me this request. Protect Israel. Protect me as I go out to battle against the Philistines. Protect your people. Give us victory so that your people are going to be safe. And so because David has the right heart, he could trust, in a sense, his desires. And so this is what we see at play in David's life. And this is important. Don't zone out on me. This is what we see in David's life and in Jesus' life and in the mature Christian's life. We see a desire for X, whatever X might be, right? Victory in battle, a desire to build the temple, a desire for whatever, we see this desire, and then we also see a greater desire, which is a desire to obey and honor God. And so for David, the desire to obey God and honor God was more important than David's desire for fill in the blank. And because of that, David could trust his desires within reason. We know the man fell, 
you know, he, he had an affair and killed his friend. Like, he's not perfect, right? But I mean, let's be honest. Who hasn't had an affair with someone bathing on a roof and killed their friend? Okay? <laughs> right. And so, I mean, so David's not perfect, obviously, but David has a desire to honor God. And that desire supersedes the other desires in his life. And so think back to that trouble, that thing that ails you, that thing that burdens you, and ask this question, because James says that all conflict comes from desires. He says that what causes conflict among you, isn't it because you desire this and they desire that, and then your desires go fisticuffs? And that just causes conflicts, whether it's in your home or with your kids. I want you to tie your shoes. I don't want to tie my shoes. My desire for you to tie your shoes, your desire to not wear shoes, are creating conflict, right? And so we have these desires that are either misplaced or right on. But what is your desire in the midst of your trouble? So in other words, when you look out on whatever you're struggling with, the politics of the day, or when you look on, um, you know, the situation in your home or the situation at work, okay, you have that problem, but what is your desire? What is your desired solution? Now, I want to make a, a caveat here to point out that it's not about giving God your strategy to solve the problem. That's what we normally do, isn't it? We have like a bulleted list, and we're like, this is the problem, God. And I know you're busy, and so I've created a 10-step plan. <laughs> you do this, and you do that, and you do this, and you do that, and, you do, and then you go through these 10 steps, and then the problem is solved. I'm happy. You're glorified. Everybody's pleased. And then we just want God to rubber stamp whatever that is. But that's not the way it works, right? There's a sense in which whenever we do that, it doesn't work out. But we, we think about that desired end result that's in line with the glory of God, and we give that to the Lord, and then we trust that he is going to work the process out in a way that is for our good and for his glory. But you have to express your desire and goal to the Lord, whatever, whatever that problem is. And it's okay to be honest. It's okay to, 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 to say, you know, Lord, I desire to move, or those things are okay. They're not inherently sinful, but... One of the things we have to do, going back to David and Jesus, as we're going to see in a little bit, is we check to see, is my desire in line with the word of God or is it counter to the word of God? Is it in line with God's desires? Is it in line with God's glory? Is it in line with God's goals? Is it in, is it in line with, with morality? Or is your desire counter to that? Because if you look at the book of James, it tells you a great deal about wisdom that is from the world that is selfish and conniving and manipulative and then wisdom from God, which is peace-seeking and unifying and it seeks the good of others. And so look at your desire and see if your desire is in line with the word of God or not. And if it's not in line with the word of God, then your, your way forward is clear. It's to repent of it and release it. But if your desire is a non-moral issue or if your desire is, is something that is in line with the word of God, then you have no reason not to just begin walking forward and trust that God will shut the door of his own accord. Often people say, well, I don't know what to do about this situation. And I tell them the same thing every time. If you're seeking the Lord and you have no unrepentant sin in your life, like you're walking, you're trying, and that doesn't mean you're perfect, it means that you're repenting of sin when you're convicted, you're seeking the Lord, 
in prayer and in the word, right? Then there's a sense in which you can trust your desires because when you get out of line, you know what the Holy Spirit's going to do? He's going to redirect you. And so you can trust the Lord with those things. And so if you feel the desire to move to, you know, Wisconsin, and there's nothing sinful in that, not to like go and move in with a mistress or something like that, then that's okay. I don't know if God has a strong opinion upon whether or not you should move to Wisconsin. But if he does, I'll shut the door. So the word tells us what we should desire, and it's our responsibility to have our desires fall in line with those desires. All right, the third thing is this, trust. So we have our trouble. Hopefully you have that articulated in your brain. You have your desire. This is my desired outcome to this God. (laughs) And then we have trust. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer from his holy heaven. Look at this confidence. With the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand up, right? O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. So David and his congregation, they pray for victory. They acknowledge their trust that God will follow through on the promises that he has given and that they can pray with confidence. They have confidence that God is going to hear them and respond. But I want to point out there's two pitfalls here as you walk on this knife's edge there's two pitfalls pitfalls not pitbulls there's pitbulls in the pitfalls guys that's why they're called pitbulls okay there's there's pitbull filled pitfalls on either side and i'm going to tell you what they are because i guarantee you you struggle with these okay and we see them in these verses Notice he says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. First tension, the first pitfall is this, using versus trusting. Now, I want to say there's a false Christian idea out there that we should simply pray and do nothing. And if God really wants it to happen, it will happen. That is a veneer of hyper-spirituality, and it's not true. Okay? It looks really spiritual, You get to look like a monk, like you're standing on a pole, right? I don't know what you're doing, okay? It looks spiritual, um, but that's really just fatalism with a veneer of false humility. And it's a facade of gospel faith. And you say, I don't think that's true, Bill. Okay. As I said earlier, David was a man of war. And guess what you use in war? Spears, swords, chariots, horses, military strategy, and the like. David didn't run into battle and just start praying. That's not what David did. David fought his battle while doing what? Praying. (laughs) So David is operating in faith, but he's using the skills and the resources and the tools that God has given to him. See, David saw beyond the source or beyond the surface reality to the deeper meaning of all that happens, namely the sovereignty of God and the provision of God to care for his people and protect his people and realize that God often does that, most normatively does that through people like himself fighting a war. And so David says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. It's one thing to use a chariot and a horse. It's another to trust in the chariot and the horse. 
It's one thing to use money. It's another thing to put all of your trust in your money, okay? It's one thing to use a doctor. It's another to trust in a doctor instead of trusting in God, realizing that nothing will work unless God blesses it. And then it's another thing entirely to say, I'm not going to bring my sick child to the doctor. I'm just going to pray. And we all occasionally see those stories, right? And I'm not saying that God doesn't heal miraculously at times. That's not what I'm saying. Don't put things in my mouth. But the point is this is about using versus trusting. Now, David proves this perspective time and time again when he has opportunity to kill Saul and claim the throne, but he trusts God's timing because God had given him a previous promise. And so he trusts in the promise. But again, what's the difference in your life as you think about this desire that you have? Are you trusting in the skills, resources, and tools that God has given you? Or are you using those resources but ultimately trusting in God? Do you understand the nuance? Yes? Okay. That's pitfall number one. And we all do it at times. Men, I'll tell you this. We are, we're always flip-flopping between those two extremes as men because part of the curse is that we're either going to be domineering or we're going to abrogate authority. And so that's what we do in our prayers. We either are like, I don't need God. I'm going to do this on my own. Or we're like, I'm just going to pray and I'm just going to probably play Xbox until God answers the prayer. Right? Those are the two extremes that men go to all the time. Like, I know I need a job, but if God wants me to get it, I mean, I'll probably send it on Battle.net. You know what I mean? And, and that's what we do. Now, second tension, the second pitfall is this. Will you wait? I made a rhyme. Will you wait or will you manipulate? <laughs> Guys, I'm just using the resources the Lord has given me. And trusting that he's going to do the work, you know? <laughs> uh, so, so here's the deal. The psalm, notes, the psalm notes that the Lord saves his anointed and that he will answer. But it doesn't say when he will answer. And so, you know, we pray for healing when we have family members who know Jesus, who are sick and are terminally ill. We pray for their healing. We know God will always answer that prayer when in the future and so we know sometimes the answer is future grace sometimes it's today right but we pray in faith knowing that every answer is yes amen in jesus christ in the new heavens and the new earth and sometimes we have the privilege of seeing those prayers answered in this mortal coil so it's about waiting versus manipulating and the waiting is the hard part because the waiting is where you get tempted to give up hope, to doubt the promises of God, and to try to bring things under your own control as you manipulate the situation. Doubt creeps in. This past week, I read 1 Kings chapter 12. And in 1 Kings chapter 12, Solomon, who's David's son, just dies. And um, there's two fools in 1 Kings chapter 12. So it's interesting. The man of wisdom dies and what? follows him are two fools, okay? And so the two fools follow him, Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Now, Rehoboam is Solomon's son, and he's trying to get advice about how he's going to deal with this labor situation in the kingdom. He trusts his dumb friends instead of the elders who have wisdom, and it costs him the kingdom. 
Jeroboam, who's in the north in Israel, trusts in his own ability, ability to manipulate the people to worship at Bethel instead of worshiping in Jerusalem as they're commanded in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 5. And God says, I'm going to destroy you and your kingdom and your whole family. See, there are great negative costs when you try to manipulate your way out of a problem instead of trusting in God. And many of us have reaped disastrous situations because we tried to manipulate our way out of a problem. All right? Can I get an amen? David could have manipulated, but he trusted. So I want you to think about this. What about you? Think about your trouble. Think about the desire that you have. And if that desire is from the Lord, you don't have to manipulate him. You can trust him because if it's from him, it will come to fruition. But if you have to manipulate it, it's not from the Lord anyway. And so look at where your trust is actually placed. Are you placing your trust in your tools, in your resources, in yourself, or are you placing your trust in the Lord? And there's no greater example than this of this than Jesus Christ. And if you think about, we don't have time to really unpack it all the way, but if you think about this psalm, go back and read it, and imagine this psalm, Jesus praying this psalm, or us praying for Jesus, whatever works in your framework, uh, as he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's faced with this monumentous trouble of the expectation of the cross, right? And, the, and the, the, the flogging and the crown of thorns and the mockery and the shame and being stripped naked and spit upon. But even more than that, he's anticipating this Trinitarian separation as he, he's separated from the Father on the cross, which we don't understand, Right? He's anticipating all of this. This is the trouble that Jesus is expecting. He knows it's going to literally hurt like hell. He knows that is this trouble before him. And he has a desire. Do you remember what he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane? He says, if there is any other way, take this cup from me. Multiple times he prays that to the point where he's sweating blood because he is exhausted physically, emotionally, spiritually over the trouble before him, the desire he has in his being. If there's any other way, that's his first desire. But what's his second desire? But not my will, but yours be done. And so there we see the tension of desires that Jesus desires any other way. But more than that, Jesus desires not my will, but yours be done. And so the desire to obey the Father supersedes an exit ramp for Jesus. And once Jesus does that for the joy that's set before him, he has his face set like flint and he goes all the way to the cross to accomplish what God set before him. And so we see the trust, not my will, but yours be done. As we have interpreted for us in hindsight, desiring to honor his father, believing that he could entrust himself to the father, even in the worst scenario imaginable, Jesus was able to die in faith, believing that God would raise him from the dead. And so he has a trouble, he has a desire, ultimately has the trust to commit himself to the Father. What about you when you think 
back on that trouble and you think about that desire, what does it look like in your world to trust God, to give that desire to God, but have that desire superseded by a desire to obey Jesus above all else, and then to trust that he who did not spare his own son will not also freely give all things to you that are good for you in Christ Jesus. Um, I, this wasn't in my notes, but I'm going to say it anyway. I won't take too much of your time. You know, the worship team sang that song, Tremble, and it brought to my mind something from three and a half years ago, December three and a half years ago. And then that brought something to mind from 21 years ago. 21 years ago, Gina and I weren't even dating yet, but we were, I was down visiting Wildwood for the first time, and um, I don't even know why she invited me, because we weren't dating. <laughs> And we were da- I was down in Wildwood, and I went to her youth group. She doesn't even remember this. And the guy who was at the youth group that day, he, like, had some kind of prophetic utterance. And, um, and you guys know that I'm kind of like, when it comes to that kind of stuff, I kind of, like, look over the fence. I'm like, that looks like fun. But it's just the way I'm wired. It's not that I disagree with all that stuff. It's just it's not natural to me, right? And... Uh, and he said that he had this vision of this revival coming out of South Jersey that spread to North Jersey and Philly and New York and to the ends of the earth. And um, it just stuck in my brain. And it was one of those things. I, I didn't think anything of it, but it stuck in my brain. And for years, I would think about it all the time. And I think maybe a couple of years ago, I asked Jean if she remembered it. She had no recollection of it, but I haven't been able to shake it for 21 years. And if you know me, you can ask David, David, how good is my memory? It's horrible. <laughs> Literally, we will finish recording a podcast, and David goes, that went really well. And I go, what are we, t- what are we talking about? <laughs> because I'm such an external processor that it's like everything's in the moment. And then I forget what I said. Three and a half years ago, I was in Malta at an Unreached People Group conference, and I heard the song Tremble for the first time, and it really resonated with my heart. And I was in the plane flying home from Malta, and I was, closed my eyes, and I had what only could be described as some kind of vision that was exactly like that vision from 21 and a half years ago of this movement of God beginning in southern New Jersey and spreading to Philadelphia and to New York City and to the ends of the earth. Now, that's a, a good desire to see God move to the ends of the earth. There's nothing sinful about that desire. I don't care if, if, uh, if Revolve's name is known in, in God doing his work. It's a good desire to have the kingdom of God go forward. Now the trouble is, we live in Cape May County. I don't know if you guys knew that. And, and imagining something like that beginning in Cape May County is just kind of like, yeah, no. Like that kind of stuff begins in Los Angeles or Jacksonville or, or you know, some place that, you know, is important, but Cape May County. But, you know, that's the trouble. But there's also this desire that we want God to move. But you know what we can do to accomplish that? Nothing. We can do nothing. We can pray. We can equip. We can trust. 
but there's nothing you can do in your flesh to bring that to fruition. It's either going to happen or it's not. It's either going to happen in this lifetime or when Jesus comes back. Maybe it won't happen at all. But we have no power to actually make it happen beyond just hearing and obeying, trusting God. But we have to guard our hearts that we don't become fatalistically sad that stuff like that will never happen. And we don't have to beat ourselves up into this terrible form of self-masochism because it's not happening. And so we trust that God will do the miraculous immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. And so what's troubling you? Lay it before the Lord. What does your heart desire in that trouble? Communicate that to the Lord and then trust God with that desire. Once we communicate to him what we want, it's time for us to trust him, his timing, his goodness, his wisdom. His answer might be no. It might be not yet. It might be in a way that you don't expect. He doesn't need a play-by-play from us. He needs our faith. Some of us will be tempted to do nothing, say we're trusting God, but not actively walking forward in daily obedience. Others will want to manipulate to get what they want because they're tired of waiting, conniving, and spinning their words to work things out for their own purposes. Repent from laziness. Repent from manipulation. Psalm 46.10 says, Stop striving and know that he is God. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 puts it this way, Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and be thankful for what he's done. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And so we think about, well, where did the New Testament authors get these words of wisdom? They got them from the Old Testament. Because really, Philippians 4, 6, and 7 is just an unpacking of Psalm 20 and so many other Psalms. And so I pray that this week you would take time to really wrestle with what is my trouble, what is my desire, and what does it look like for me to trust God? Let's pray. Father God, I ask that you would give us self-awareness, give us clarity of mind, that we would understand who you are, we would understand what you're doing, we would understand what you desire from us, that we would have the ability to see the actual trouble, that we would look at the root of the problem and that we wouldn't focus on the peripheral tertiary fruit, which really isn't the problem at all, and that you would teach us to trust and obey in the meantime as we wait on you. Jesus, come soon. In your name we pray. Amen. Have a great week, guys. Thank you.